This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we're speaking with. Then we'll get into the interview. And lastly, we'll each share our biggest takeaways from the conversation. On this episode, we talk with Todd Plotkin, CEO and founder of Emmy Award-winning GreenBuzz Agency. Todd's story starts with being a baseball card-selling entrepreneur as a kid. His interest in business and striking it out on his own started at a young age. In high school, Todd also discovered his passion for video production. It was these two passions that eventually led him to founding his very own video production agency. Although it may sound like a straight line, Todd's path has had a bunch of twists and turns to get him to where he is today. You'll hear how Todd struggled through his first entry-level jobs and even found his dream job, working for the Washington Wizards, wasn't all it was cut out to be. After years of staying in this job, one bad Friday at work led him to make the jump and see how he could make it on his own. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, my name is Todd Plotkin, and I founded and run GreenBuzz Agency, a video production company in Old Town, Alexandria. Todd, we wanted to start this interview by asking you, when did you first get interested in business and entrepreneurship? So, you know, I had been an entrepreneur as a kid. I had my own baseball card shop. I (laughs) tried my best to transition buying baseball cards into making profit to then buy more baseball cards. I don't think I was successful. I think I (laughs) have parents that kept giving me money to buy more baseball cards. But um, but I got to think like an entrepreneur as a 12-year-old and go to flea markets and try to sell cards in kind of creative ways of, you know, mixing and matching. If I put all of the best players from this particular team, could I charge a premium for that, for doing that additional work? And so business seemed to be a good natural fit. It seemed more like less defined, more like the Wild West where anything can happen. You can make anything happen in business. And we know that you also ended up becoming really involved with video throughout your career. When did you realize that was something that interested you? In terms of getting into video production, I had, I had taken a handful of classes in high school. I was very lucky that I went to the largest high school in Massachusetts, and they had a TV network that went out to everyone that lived in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So, so Cape Cod has about 250,000 person population year round, much bigger, huge spike in the summertime, millions and millions of people visit. But just knowing that you are going to have your content there where 250,000 people could potentially come across it as they were flipping through the 60 channels that they had on their cable network and your one show just played on loop over and over and over again was so cool. And to be able to be at your house and flip on the TV and watch a segment that you made and be like, all right, I know if I just wait five more minutes, I'm going to see the segment that I produced. It was just, just a very lucky thing. And I had gotten away from that and gotten away from video production when I went to college and then realized that we had a, we had a video production department at George Washington and took a class, absolutely loved it, reignited all of my love from high school for it and wish I could have majored in it. I just Mm. was too far along with my credits in the business school at that point. And so I minored in it and uh, got to take some amazing classes in documentary content, which still use to this day. 
some of the lessons learned from former um, former people that had produced actual segments on 60 Minutes and could really do mm. at oh the goodness. highest level. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where where I switched back to to video production, even though I was in the business school. I'm curious what part of this video production process you were drawn to and what made you love it? Was it, you know, the ability to spread a message? Was it the performance and celebrity of it, the the technical aspects? What was it that you were so drawn to? It's definitely the storytelling. It's definitely be able to craft the story and evoke an emotion in someone else that they might not otherwise have, whether that's just levity and, and making them laugh or it's making them feel like they can run through a wall and, and they can conquer the day or it's just taking time to self-reflect and, and get emotional um, in a very busy world. You know, I think that crafting the story, because you can take the same footage and if you change out the music, you change out which sound bites you use, tell a drastically different story. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really exciting and, and be able to craft that and know you're going to have an impact on someone else is, is really fun. And is there... You know, that resonates with us a lot. I mean, obviously we're doing a podcast where we hope to achieve some of those goals of evoking emotion and some self-reflection, but why video, you know, why, 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 why was that the medium you chose versus some other medium? Uh, I think a lot of it comes back to talent. A lot of it comes back to what are you, what naturally feels right. I tried Mm -hmm. to be a musician just a little bit. I took a violin class my dad was fantastic at piano and guitar and I couldn't pick up either of those. My grandmother was amazing artist, had museums around the world. I wasn't a great painter. I didn't read a lot. So I don't think writing was really for me, Mm. Uh, but I watched a lot of movies. I watched (laughs) a lot of television. I understood it. I had opinions on it. I had opinions on how things could improve, how they could get better. Then I can really mold it and, and, you know, essentially make it uh, the best it possibly can be based on my own perspective. When you graduated college, we know you were able to stick to this media interest and you, you went to work um, at Apple Tree Institute, which is a nonprofit in DC in the education space. Could you tell us about how you landed that gig and, and what you were up to there? Yeah. So right out of college, my good friend was working at a restaurant and he was a host. And I thought, I want to be a host there. And I went in for the interview for to be a host and they strongly pushed me to be a waiter. So I was a waiter. I was the waiter there for two weeks. And I went in one day and someone ordered a lemonade and I cut my thumb really badly and no one helped me at all. Like no mm. one at all helped me. And I quit right there. Like on the moment, I just quit. Wow. Wow. And <laughs> I applied around and I applied to Apple Tree Institute. There wasn't a lot of strategy that went into it. It was like, hey, I don't have a source of income. I just quit the one job, the one source of, of money I had coming in. I wasn't you know, banking on the ability of my family to be able to financially support me. So I needed something. So you know, Apple Tree Institute, they needed someone to help them with video. I didn't have a lot of experience with video because all I had was my minor and, and some small roles. And, you know, I think that that was a good match. Like I didn't have a great deal of experience. They weren't looking for a world-class video production professional. And uh, in terms of how I landed the role, a lot of that was luck. 
And a lot of that was the fact that I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and the person who was running Apple Tree Institute and had founded it was from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And honestly, that's the only reason I think we, I got that, that <laughs> position. And I wore shorts to the interview. And I think I was, I think that was brought up about a hundred times between <laughs> the interview and then the subsequent year and a half I worked there <laughs> that they couldn't believe I wore shorts and yet they still hired me. But again, I think they just hired me because we were from the same, you know, part of the United States. Did you learn your lesson or did you continue to wear shorts? I, no, I did something? not. I did not wear shorts again after that. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing and, and that was very clear. I wore just like a regular t-shirt and shorts and yeah. And between both of those early jobs that you had, were there things you realized of like things you really liked in a job or wanted out of a job versus things you really didn't like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't like a job. I, I think that was the biggest <laughs> thing. Uh, I didn't, I really, really didn't like it. I really didn't feel comfortable working a nine to five. I just, you know, me as a student, I really feel like I got by as a high school and college student just you know, based on being good at tests. I wasn't a super hit the books hard sort of person. And I think that those folks transition better to those kind of entry level jobs, regardless of what industry you were in. And that wasn't me. Like I like to get ahead by kind of taking a different angle than other people's are. And you can't do that in an entry level job. At the entry level job, you got to prove yourself that you're willing to work hard that you're dedicated, that you're loyal, that you're all of these things. And I wasn't really any of those things. I was, I was really a bad employee. You know, like I wouldn't want to hire myself back then. Looking at all the jobs I had before Green Buzz Agency, I watched very closely the politics that took place, how people shifted around, how they got promotions, how they got the most glamorous project that might be going on. And it seemed exhaustive to me. It mm. seemed just not my style at all. And I felt like I could operate much better outside of a system where it was the wild, wild west, where I could reach out to anyone and say anything at any time and have meetings with whoever I want and share my vision and my strategy with them on my own time in my own style, as opposed to I have to go to my boss to get the okay to go reach out to another department and give them my opinion on something. So yeah, I just learned I wasn't good at working at places. So we know that after this, you ended up working for the Washington Post, which seems to be, you know, the opposite of the wild, wild west, at least from my perspective, from the outside looking in. Why did you choose to go to another very structured job and company after you realized that's not really what you wanted? At that point in time, I'm, I'm a few years out of college and there's nothing very remarkable of what I had done at that point, you know, at uh, three, four years out. And so to be the morning producer for a completely new initiative that the Washington Post was doing and they were putting a lot of resources into this launch of a radio station, that was all of a sudden glamorous. And now I'm working with all the top reporters in the country, the, the film critic for the Washington Post and the, the food restaurant critic for the Washington Post. These are names. These are national names to some degree. And I'm the one that's working directly with them. How did you end up getting this job at the Washington Post? Did you have any experience in journalism? Had written a few articles for the GW Hatchet, which is the newspaper that George Washington University had on sports, but was so less accomplished in journalism than everyone else I was surrounded by at the Washington Post. 
it was mind boggling to me that I got that job. Mm. And I think that that was the beginning of seeing the power of a human connection versus having the credentials necessary for a position. Because I technically should have gone to one of the top journalism schools in the country, come out, been a reporter, worked the beat, grinded away to get that job and to see who my peers were, who the other people that had the equivalent roles as I did there. Um, and instead, it was just a friend of mine from George Washington University left that role, recommended me, and then I happened to do well in the interview, and then I got offered the job, right? Like, what an incredible bypass of, of the normal process. I was only at the Washington Post for seven months, and then was off for about a month, and then was picked up by the Washington Wizards right before their season started, and then worked there for three and a half years, uh, four full seasons, the 2006 to 2010 range. Wow, that sounds like a, the dream role for anyone who loves DC sports. I'm curious, what was that role like? And did it live up to the hype and, and dream that you thought it would be? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I'm <laughs> enormous, enormous NBA fan. Just absolutely could not have been more excited for that position. And, and you know, the first year was fine. It was exciting being so close to the team and a lot of glamour kind of associated with it. And in the second year, you start to see the patterns. You start to be very repetitive. You make a lot of videos about the Washington Wizards doing a community service event. You know, you get, at that point, you know who all of the sponsors are. You've already made the sponsorship video for Chipotle or Southwest Airlines. And then when you go back year two and make the exact same video for them, there's nothing has changed. It goes from being very exciting to mm -hmm. much less so. And then year three and year four, you know, I should have absolutely left that position way earlier. That's probably of my entire career, my biggest regret is how long I stayed with the Wizards in that position. Um, and you know, the other thing about professional sports, and I'm not alone in this, I've talked to a lot of people that work in professional sports, you are absolutely seen as a dime a dozen. The idea is there are a thousand people out there that would die to have the position that you have. So therefore, we don't need to treat you well, we don't need to pay you well, and we don't really have to listen to you on any level. And the other element of, of the Wizards is professional sports and professional basketball is a monopoly. Who is competing with them? I guess the other professional sports leagues, possibly college basketball. But the reality is there's only one real professional sports league that everyone in the world cares about because that's the league that has Giannis and LeBron James and all of the mega superstars. And when you have a monopoly you're likely to make money. And if you're going to make money and your owner already is worth billions of dollars, then they probably just want to keep the status quo. And they probably want to just keep doing what, what has already gotten them to that point. So it sounds like, well, while you were there, part of the reason why you got frustrated while you were there was kind of this culture of doing the same thing, keeping the status quo. And I'm wondering, is that what pushed you to go and start your own thing was like, Hey, I want a new challenge. I want to be learning new things. I don't want to be doing the same thing every year. I, I wish I had had thought that way. I wish I had said, I want to learn new things. I don't know if I just didn't want to be 
controlled the way I was in the job and paid as poorly as I was. <laughs> that was really the big thing, you know? Yeah. You didn't want to be part of a, a toxic work culture where people threw each other under the bus and the people who threw the others under the bus were rewarded for it. That was really the driving force, unfortunately. It wasn't this positive, I want to go learn, I want to go grow and expand. It was, I need to get out of here. Like, this is mm -hmm. just, yes, it's super repetitive, but more so it's toxic. Why do you think you did stay there for long then? Like, kind of looking back on it, what, what sucked you in? Just, just the security of, it was a sweet deal from them in the sense that they wouldn't pay me very much, but they also were totally fine with me doing as much freelance work as I wanted to. So it, it was this really great sort of platform and backbone to start a company when you have a, your current company saying, yeah, that's fine. Feel free to go out there and do as much as you want in this, this freelance world, uh, as long as you're hitting your marks and you're, you're producing the projects that we're asking you to. So how did you end up moving on from, from the wizards then? What did, you know, you figured out that, hey, I, I need to get out of this place. What did you do? You know, there was an incident at the wizards that really took me aback and, and I just was very unhappy with it. It was a Friday. And at that point in time, LinkedIn was much earlier in its development. You know, most people didn't know it. It was not a household name. And most people were not on there. And if someone received a message from someone on there, they were even more perplexed by it. But it was the only way I knew how to reach out to other people and let them know about my services. And so I spent an entire weekend starting when I got home until midnight on Sunday, pretty much just churning out as many messages as I possibly could. And Throughout that time, I, I sent out a, a little over 500 messages and they were all personalized. They all were specific to that individual, you know, through that process, ended up with about two clients. So you say, all right, I reach out to 500 people. I hear back from maybe 50 of them. And of those 50, maybe 20 of them have projects. And of those 20, maybe two are willing to take a chance on someone who doesn't have a website. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, that was kind of the the origin story of, of doing a lot of cold emails. We know now that, you know, all that cold emailing did pay off because you left the Wizards eventually to found your own video production company called Green Buzz Agency. I'm curious to hear about, you know, one of those early clients that you had that helped you make the transition from working at the Wizards to going full-time and, and diving into Green Buzz. There was this one really large project that came in and it was the Washington mystics of all places. They had heard through the grapevine that I was thinking about leaving and starting my own firm. And so the head of their game operations pulled me aside to come up to my office. Then they said, Hey, we'll give you every video project for this season. If you really do leave and, yeah. and start your own agency. And so, you know, the, the budget on that was the equivalent of one year salary for me at the Wizards. And so that was that runway wow. I needed in order. And I just remember getting that offer, getting that contract. Not, I mean, I have yet to be as excited on the business side of my life as that day. Like that was, <laughs> I was ecstatic, you know, like it was, it was everything. It was like, I get to finally give this a go and really, you know, try this out and see if I can make it happen. 
And we know that, you know, flash forward 10 years later, Green Buzz is successful and you've been growing the team and the business slowly but surely. And I'm wondering, as Green Buzz became more successful, did you like that responsibility that came with running a larger and larger company? Did your role change a lot? I mean, I think an interesting way of thinking about this is a lot of people say that the more successful your agency becomes, the further you get away from the creative. So very early on with a video production company, it is about the creative. It's about the projects. It's making sure that they look as good as they possibly can be. And then it becomes about financial security for your employees and sales and business development. And then it becomes about operations. How do you make sure that everything is operating as smoothly as it possibly can when you go from five people to 10 people and to 12 people? And then when you transition into 25 people or 30 people, then it becomes beyond operations. Then it becomes what are the ethics of your organization? How do you feel about Black Lives Matter? How do you feel about the pandemic and working from home? And, and so it becomes all these other things. Mm. What I would say is, do I like it or do I don't like it? I don't know if I, I would say I don't like it. I would just say it's different and it's challenging. And I like that it forces you to use different, you know, creative thought processes and it, it forces you to just think in different ways. And, and that's exciting. Um, but again, it's not exactly what I intended going into it. Do you have any career highlights from Green Buzz, either projects that you worked on that really stood out or moments of the company that you just really reflect back on and are think these were some of the best times? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorite moments ever at Greenba's agency was the first time we produced a video for Make-A-Wish Foundation. We were not expecting to be invited to the gala where the video that we had created was going to play. Mm -hmm. We did not realize that the video we had created was sort of the punch to the whole gala. It was the final thing. It was, it was what they played right before they did the ask for people to donate to the organization and how crucial that moment is right before you do an ask. And it's very rare in video to get to see on a mass level a bunch of people watching your work unless you've created a movie and you're in a movie theater and you can look around at faces and hear their laughter. So to get to look around a room of thousands of people and see tears in, in people's eyes and oh. the applause that came after it and know that you were impacting such a great organization um, was just so cool on so many levels. And then even retrospective, you know, the additional layers is, is how important Make-A-Wish has been for us and the doors that the work we've done with them have opened. The fact that we have won enormous national awards with them, whether it be Emmys or Webbies, and then that opens the door for Upworthy to work with us, Children's Hospital Network, American Red Cross, and it goes on and on and on how important and crucial that, that project was. I think related to all of this, Todd, I wonder if we just step back for a moment, how do you think about defining a successful career for yourself? And do you feel like you've achieved it or are you on your way to achieving it? I think a successful career is when you know 
what skill sets you have that you're really good at, that you like doing those skill sets you're really good at, and you find the opportunity to do that on a very consistent basis. I think that you will enjoy your job if, if you're, you know, like for instance, I would make the worst car mechanic in the world. I just, I know myself, I am so bad at anything even, you know, remotely related to that, but I'm very good at a pitch. I'm very good at meeting with a client. I'm good at conducting an interview and kind of figuring out if a person's gonna make a strong fit for our team or not in building a company culture. And I get to do those things very consistently. And so for that reason, I do think I have a successful career because I'm doing what I'm really good at mm. all the time. And I enjoy it. I want to go back to something that you said much earlier on in the interview. You had talked about how your your dad was a, a great musician and your, your grandmother was uh, an amazing painter. And you love this idea of video of really evoking an emotion. And I think your Make-A-Wish uh, foundation story i mean really highlights that do you feel like part of what you love about green buzz agency and the work that you do is that you're able to do that even more frequently or at a higher level is evoke emotion in in more people or at a deeper deeper level yeah i mean i think senior year of college i kind of came to this realization that in my personal opinion, video production was the highest level of art form because it was a blend of so many other art forms, obviously music and sound design that goes into it from the artistry of graphic design and motion graphics to lighting and the art of, of lighting someone properly and making a mood out of that. Now, I think that there's a lot of ways to sort of back up that statement and, and just how much people consume television and movies and that that is sort of their primary source. It may not be the highest level of entertainment they get. Maybe they love roller coasters or maybe they love going to concerts more than they like watching TV. But I guarantee you that, that most everyone takes in more visual content than they do as much as they might be a concert head and they love to hit up as many concerts. They're still probably watching TV more than they're going to concerts. Um, it's just a, a very accessible art form and there's so much you can do because in one video, yes, you can evoke an emotion. You can evoke all kinds of emotions. You can evoke uh, someone laughing and crying within seconds of each other. So rare. You can't, you can't really do that with, with many other things. You can find more episodes of How I Got Here wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please consider sharing. It really helps. Do you know the perfect person for us to interview next? Or do you want to be on the podcast yourself? Check out our website at howigotherepodcast.com. We'll be back with more episodes soon.